In 1 Kings chapter 11, we're going to end our discussion of Solomon this evening. And we're going to read verses 9 through 13. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice and commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he kept not that which the Lord commanded. Wherefore, the Lord said to Solomon, for as much as this is done of you and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely rend the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Notwithstanding, in your days, I will do it not. I, I will not do it for David, your father's sake, but I will rend it out of the hand of your son. Howbeit, I will not rend away all of the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for David, my servant's sake, and for Jerusalem's sake, which I have chosen. Bob is a manager of a big box store. And he's been with the company since his college days. Over the past couple of years, Bob has moved into management. And it's been anything but smooth. He, instead of enjoying the success of his hard work, Bob has been lied about, slandered, threatened with physical harm, if you can imagine, by other employees who thought they deserved the promotion that he got. The latest difficulty is that others are now threatening him with a lawsuit. And this is just another headache in Bob's life. And he wonders if the promotion and extra income is worth the headache and the heartache that has come with it. And by the way, Bob's a Christian. Greg and Ginger are a young couple, a young Christian couple, who both work for a local charity. And they're involved in their local church. And from the outside, everything seems great about this couple. However, they harbor a dark secret. A few years ago, Ginger made some bad choices and actually broke the law. Not a super serious law, but she did break the law nonetheless. Most people don't know the situation. In fact, Ginger has concocted a story that makes it sound like she's the victim and, and that this is now becoming a problem for them. Both of them are struggling spiritually and their life has suffered. Uh, in fact, their spiritual life is just very stagnant right now. Greg thinks they should come clean, but Ginger is really embarrassed, especially since she's told her story, which is a lie, to many people already. Christine is a senior adult with a history of medical problems. Lately, her health has become pretty debilitating. And at the same time, the Lord has taught Christine a bunch of lessons through her pain. She has seen him work throughout her testimony. And while she wants to do more than she can, she knows that God has a plan for her, even though it's not what she would have chosen. Now, which of these stories are all fictional? I just made them up. But which of these stories is God's chastening? And the answer is all of them. They all likely are examples of chastening. Is Bob being chastened by God for taking a promotion at work? Yes. And is Ginger and Greg being chastened for Ginger's crime? Sure. And what about Christine? Is she being chastened? Yes. Now, we know God chastens us for our sin. That's pretty clear. I mean, read Hebrews 12, right? I mean, it just says it straight out. God chastens us uh, for our good. But it may be 
that these other things we call trials can also be considered chastening, even though there's no specific sin attached. In other words, sometimes God brings difficulty into the life to help us learn a spiritual lesson and to grow in our trust with him. So in Solomon's case, I mean, this is plain old chastening for sin. We get that. But what I want you to recognize is that the struggles that you're going through, maybe you're going through right now, maybe you're coming out of a, of a trial or crisis, and maybe God has something planned for you you don't know anything about yet. It's coming. It's a year from now, five years from now. Those, that chastening hand of God in your life may be because of sin, but it doesn't have to be that way. In Solomon's case, it's sin. But you need to understand that God chastens us for our good to help us grow. Now, let's consider Solomon. Why is he being chastened by the Lord? Well, he's like Ginger in our story, right? I mean, he's, he's committed a crime against God, and he's done all sorts of really terrible things. He has violated God's laws for kings. He has multiplied his wealth. He has multiplied horses and he's multiplied wives, wealth, horses, and wives. God said, don't do it. And it's exactly what he did. And worse, the result of his many wives is they turned his heart toward idolatry. And now Solomon is facing the chastening hand of God because of his sin. So I want to stop before we get into this. And I want you to recognize it may be that you're facing chastening because of sin. And the first thing a Christian does when he gets into chastening is he examines himself and says, have I sinned? It's the first thing a Christian should do. But if you come out of that and you say, no, I don't believe it's sin, or if it is sin and you repent of that sin and turn to the Lord, then you've, you've really reconciled that in your mind. And if it isn't because of sin, then you say, okay, God has a different plan for me. I don't know exactly what that is. But if it's sin... And we all go through the chastening hand of God because of our sin, because not one of us is perfect. We're so far from perfect. I mean, perfect is down the street, around the corner. It's miles away, right? And we've got a long way to go. Someone to describe the Christian life this way. The holiest of us is on the roof. The rest of us are somewhere in the house. And the sun is still millions of miles away, right? I mean, that's, that's the reality of holiness. And so because we sin, we do face the chastening hand of God. So what I want to talk to you about is what happens when we sin and God chastens us for our sin. We're going to limit ourselves to just that idea because this is what's going on in Solomon's life. And what I want you to see, number one, is that God is angry with disobedient people. This flies in the face with modern sensibilities. <clears throat> How often have we been told that from the perspective of God, it's love the sinner, hate the sin? We've been told that. But notice what it says here in verse 9. Look at verse 9. What does it say? What does the text say? The Lord was angry with Solomon. His anger is linked to individuals specifically. Sometimes God gets angry with us when we disobey him. 
This is the same word used for how God was angry with Moses when he struck the rock. He was angry with Moses. It says he was angry with Aaron the priest when he formed the golden calf. Later it says he was angry with Israel for their idol worship. Now remember, this is for direct disobedience. We might even say this is for sinning with a high hand. This is, this is very serious sin. But it does say here that he was angry with Solomon. And he's angry with Solomon because of his sin. It says, because his heart was turned from the Lord his God of Israel, which had appeared to him twice and commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he kept not with that which the Lord commanded. Look at the text here. His anger is directed at people because of their disobedience to him. Solomon's heart had turned from God. You can't say Solomon didn't know. How do we know we can't say that? Because the text reveals God had revealed to him twice and specifically commanded him concerning this thing. Do not go after other gods. It, it's just crystal clear. Solomon directly disobeyed the revelation of God. In fact, God had specifically revealed himself twice to Solomon. And Solomon says, I'm going to do the other thing. Let me ask you a question. Has God revealed himself to us? Oh, more than twice. I mean, he's revealed himself to us over and over and over again. Every time you open God's word, he's revealing himself to you. And has he made commandments to us? In his word? And the answer again is yes. He's made many commandments to us. This past summer, I had the privilege of preaching at a family camp at a little, uh, little camp up in central Illinois. Uh, this is a small camp. There were probably 25 people at the most at this camp. Um, young families. Uh, so these were young moms and dads. Bunch of little kids running around. <clears throat> and I had the opportunity to open the Bible and talk to them about husband and wives, what the Lord is wanting them to do. And we walked through a whole bunch of scriptures. And do you know, as we we're walking through those passages, it reminded me again, these are commands that the Lord has given to me. It, it isn't just that you go, there's a lot of really good counsel or advice in God's word about husband wife relationships. As I was walking through that uh, and studying for those sermons, I was going, man, that's a command for me. That's a command. I, I need to do that. And it just allowed to remind me, the Lord reminded me of my obligations to Becky, my obligations to my children. And, and then how am I setting an example for the other people in the church as, as the pastor? Here, here's the command. And you think about all the commands that are in the New Testament. All the, the obligations that we have to the Lord. Ha, have we ever become disobedient to those things? I know I have. And I, and I know that when I'm disobedient, I run the risk of God being angry with my sin. With me for my sin. God gets angry about sin. You say, well, what about the atonement? Okay, we're in, the, we're in a new dispensation, you know, 
What about forgiveness of sin? And what about atonement? And what about relationship? We know our relationship with, with God cannot be broken because we're believers. And I think all of that is true. But for just a moment, I want you to suspend that kind of thing. We're going to talk about that thing in a moment. Suspend that information. Put it aside. Put it in a filing cabinet. Close the door. Okay. I just want you to focus on this one thought. We have been revealed. God has revealed himself to us. We have seen the revelation of God. We at times have violated that revelation of God specifically. We have gone against what God has taught us to do, what he's commanded us to do, and yet we expect him not to be angry about it. And I think we need to just stop and realize that God gets angry at our sin and at us when we sin. And this leads us to point number two. God can get angry because of our sin. And number two, his anger can result in chastening. Some chastening is the direct result of sin. Hey, this is where we're living. Verse 11, wherefore the Lord said to Solomon, for as much as this is done of thee, you did this. You did not keep my covenant. You did not keep my statutes, which I commanded you to do. Now, God outlines the law Solomon violated. He says, you did this. You did not keep my laws. You disobeyed me. I mean, it's almost like a father talking to his little boy, right? I told you to clean your room. I gave you three days to do it. You never cleaned the room. You're in trouble now, right? I, I had many of those times with my children where we would have those heart-to-heart -heart talks that never went well for them, right? Because I, I gave you a command to do this, you didn't do it, and now I am angry with you. In fact, I, I read books on parenting about how you should never be angry with your children when you discipline them. I completely disagree with that, by the way. I was angry with them. It's a righteous anger. I'm not going to strike them in, in, a, in, in a loss of temper. I don't believe in that at all. But I'm angry. Sure. It's disobedience. And here God is angry. He's, he verbally told Solomon, this is what's coming if you sin against me. And the chastening hand of God is painful. Look, at, look how he continues verse 11. I will surely rend the kingdom. Stop for a moment. Where have you heard that before? This is the exact verbiage. It's the exact language that Samuel said to Saul. Can, can you stop for a second and put this in your mind? Okay. Samuel's the judge. Israel wants a king. They come to, they come to Samuel and say, we want a king. We want to be like all the nations around us. Samuel's all upset. He goes, he cries all night to the Lord. The Lord says to Samuel, look, it's okay. Uh, my long-term plan was for them to have a king. They're, they're a little ahead of the plan, but it's okay. Um, go ahead and, and I'll lead you to the person. And so he goes and, and God leads him to Saul. And Saul becomes the king. <clears throat> and from the outside, Saul looks like everything you want in a king. He's, he's tall, he's strong, he's handsome. He's everything you want in a king. In fact, if you remember the story of Saul or Israel against Goliath and David and Goliath, Saul was a head and shoulders about every other man in Israel. Saul was the only person whose stature was equal to Goliath's. He was a Goliath himself. He's huge. 
And so the fact that Saul was scared of him showed something inside Saul that was broken. And Saul violated the command of God given through Samuel. And because of that, Samuel says to Saul, this is from the Lord. I'm going to rend the kingdom from you and give it to your neighbor. That's, that's what he says. Then the neighbor is a man after God's own heart. That's David. And David is the one installed and he becomes king and he reigns for 40 years. And then his son Solomon, of course, David, you know, he's got all sorts of family issues himself from different sins in his life. But Solomon becomes king, um, the, the, the first child that lives from Bathsheba. Solomon becomes the king and, and Solomon is really no better than Saul at the end. And this is the guy who writes most of the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. He wrote some of the Psalms. He actually wrote God's words. But at the end of his life, he's no different from Saul. We, we criticize Saul because he went to see the witch of Endor. Okay, that's bad. And we all agree, witch of Endor story, bad. Saul's bad, witch of Endor. Solomon goes into the temple of Molech and worships a false god, a temple that he built. Isn't that worse? Would you say that's at least on par with bad? I'm going to at least say it's on par with bad. And, and, you, and we look at Saul's life, and you know, you got that story, and he, he goes to the witch, and up comes Samuel, and the witch is surprised. Oh, it's actually Samuel. And Sam, he starts talking to Samuel, and Samuel's, why have you called me up? And, and he says, you know, tomorrow you'll be with me, basically, in Sheol. You're going to be dead. And, and so Saul is, is uh, uh, really upset, and he says, I'm not going to eat. And then, every, and then he changes his mind, because he's so fickle. He says, okay, I'll eat. And then he goes off, and he fights his battle, and he ends up committing suicide, and he dies. And is that really worse than Solomon? Because Solomon hears all of this from God and doesn't change. I mean, even Ahab repented when God said, I'm going to take the kingdom from you. Ahab repented in sackcloth. I mean, he didn't, he didn't repent to salvation. He was still wicked. But you don't get any of that from Solomon. Solomon's heart is so turned from God at this point, he's so turned away that he's actually, after hearing what God will bring upon him, yeah, well, all right, I can, I can live through this. I mean, this guy is a spiritually broken man, and God says, I will rend the kingdom from you, the language in 1 Samuel 15, 28. And the kingdom was given here, not to his neighbor, but to his servant. And that's Jeroboam. Now, I do think God still can work this way. I know it's a little bit different. Nobody in here is a Jewish king. We don't have those responsibilities. But we have responsibilities that are given to us by God. And I do believe that if we are disobedient to the Lord like this, on this level, you should expect the chastening hand of God in your life. And it's going to be really painful. This story up to this point causes me to tremble just a little bit. I don't know about you, but it, it's, it's serious and difficult. In fact, it would have been kind of nice to skip this message. <laughs> you know, yeah, the other ones, they were pretty negative, but at least they weren't this negative. This is pretty hard. But there is a blessing in the middle of all of this. 
And it's actually in the next couple of verses. And this, this, even though this causes me to tremble, I want you to notice something here. God in his chastening limits himself. This is point number three. God's chastening is always in keeping with his covenant faithfulness to us. We don't deserve it. We don't merit it. But God's love. We used that word this morning. It's chesed. Translated mercy in the King James. It's really steadfast love. This is the word that Jeremiah uses when he goes out from his bed in the morning and he says, I can't believe they're still in Israel. <laughs> I can't believe it. How could there still be in Israel? This is impossible. I mean, if you read Isaiah, which is written like some hundred years earlier, the whole body is sick. The whole nation, from the top of the head to the sole of the foot, the whole nation is sick and it's filled with putrid sores. And Isaiah describes how the nation, and Jeremiah describes that the princes and the prophets and the priests and the pastors and the people were all corrupt. It's the whole nation. And so you get to Lamentations as he's talking about his sorrow over the people and their sin. He gets up one morning and said, it is of the Lord's chesed, his steadfast mercies, that we are not consumed. It's just unbelievable that God hasn't just completely destroyed us because what was happening in Solomon's life now was happening in the whole nation. But why hadn't God destroyed Solomon? Why didn't he just destroy him? Why not just kill him? I mean, he's going to do that for others. Why not just kill Solomon? Why not just take all of the kingdom away from him and give it to somebody else? Look at verse 12. For David, thy father's sake. Look at verse 13. For David, my servant's sake. You see, God's chastening is balanced by his agreements. And this is what's really good because we, we sin all the time. And if, and if I'm sinning all the time, what should I be expecting to be in my life all the time? What would I expect? Chastening all the time. But God isn't beating me down. He, he's not just tearing into me like I deserve. What's he doing? He's balancing his chastening hand with his promises to love me and to take care of me and to help me even though I am weak and sinful. And that balancing is what makes him such a good God. Let me tell you, this is not the Muslim God. The Muslim God has no mercy at all. Allah is a merciless God. This, this is not some of those Hindu gods. This is a completely different expression of God. This is one that the other nations would not understand because this is not the God who's just up there looking down and say, fine, you're going to do all that. You're going to worship other gods and I'm going to bring the storms upon you and I'm going to bring the floods and I'm going to bring the drought and I'm going to bring the pestilence and I'm going to bring the bugs and I'm just going to rip into you just like God did to the Egyptians through the plagues. No, God says, I have a love for you that I have declared for you and you are mine. And because you're mine, I will not do those things to you. And that love that God has balances this. David's, he says, David, your father's sake. That's, that's 
David, that's the relationship that Solomon has through David, right? David's the dad, your father, David, your father's sake. But then he says, David, my servant's sake. So this is what it is. I'm related to David because David is my father. David is bound to God because God is his master. I have this relationship that I do not deserve through David, my father. And in that sense, the Davidic covenant is in play. The promise that God makes in 2 Samuel 7, that there will be an everlasting kingdom is in play. And, and really, if you go through the line of David, very few of the kings deserve this. I mean, you get to Ahaz, and he's, he's the, the prophet Isaiah is trying to draw out of Ahaz. God wants to make promises to you, Ahaz. Hey, I'm not going to tempt the Lord, my God. Like, he's super spiritual. Fine. Now to you, O house of David. I'm going to speak right over you, Ahaz. I'm going to talk to the rest of your line. I'm talking right over your head. It's not to you, Ahaz, but to your line. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and bear a son. That's to David's house. So you look at this and you say, well, what relationship do I have to God? Well, if you're one of his children, it's everything. That's why you can go to sleep tonight not trembling in fear like the first half of the sermon might lead you to think. It's to realize that even though I do deserve the worst of God's wrath upon me, he already poured out that wrath on Jesus Christ. And now the chastening he's doing in my life is just to help me grow spiritually. And yes, I think if you sin with a high hand against God, you're either not saved or I think eventually he'll call you home. I do believe you can either out-sin your day of grace or you can, you can sin unto death. I think that's possible for believers. But I'm talking about sin with a high hand. You know, we're talking about gross sin. But for those day-to-day -day struggles that we all have, I don't, have, I don't sit there and tremble in fear. I'm not, I don't have to, like Roman Catholics, just continually say the Hail Marys and go through the rosary and worry about whether or not God is going to bring down his wrath upon my head. I don't do that because he, he, he chastens or he, he balances all of his chastening that he would bring on me with that great promise that he's made to love me. And so that balance limits how far God will go in chastening his people. Notwithstanding in your days, I will not do it for David, your father's sake, but I will rend it out of the hand of your son. And that, of course, was Rehoboam. He will lose 10 of the tribes. Howbeit, howbeit, I will not rend it all the way. So I'm going to take the kingdom, but not even the whole kingdom. I will leave you a tribe for David, my servant's sake, and Jerusalem's sake, which I've chosen. It's the tribe of Judah. God doesn't destroy his people. His chastening him may be painful at times and you may go through great difficulty. Learning some important lessons. But friends, the blessing of God's chastening in my life and in your life is the knowledge that he will not destroy me. The kingdom, here he says, will not be lost forever. The tribes, by the way, that were taken, those tribes were lost. <laughs> they, they, uh, they end up being the lost tribes of Israel. Right? They become the Samaritans and intermarry with a bunch of different people. But the remaining tribe uh, uh, with whom Benjamin aligns itself politically, it is actually remains, he says, because I have chosen Jerusalem for myself. And God would not go against his promises. 
And so I look at I look at my life and I say, so so the application for me is quite simple. I really want to obey God's commands. They're there. I want to be obedient. Sometimes I disobey. And when I disobey, the chastening hand of God is going to come down on my life, not as I deserve, because he has mercy. He has steadfast love. And so instead of chastening me as I deserve, in his love, he disciplines me to help me to grow to be more like his son, Jesus. And the blessing of this is that as you learn to respond to his chastening with, okay, Lord, I'm ready to learn the lesson you have for me. Some of you, I know you're going through that kind of thing right now. Okay, Lord, I'm ready to learn. Okay, God's going to use those things. It may not be something you learn immediately, but he's going to use those things in your life to teach you and grow you, to grow your faith, to, to grow your walk with him, to grow your devotion to him. But he does those things to help you have a stronger walk, closer relationship him, not to hurt you, because that's not the God we serve. We deserve the worst, but God loves us anyway, and he's made us one of his own through Jesus. And so because of that, we can sleep well tonight, knowing that while we may deserve chastening that's brutal and harsh, it will never be that way, because the Lord is always on our side. Let's pray. Lord, Help us to understand this passage of Scripture tonight. I know it's not necessarily an easy 